The history of Star Wars is the history of cinema. For everything you like about Star Wars, there is at least one film that inspired it. And we're going to review them all on Episode Zero. Welcome back to Episode Zero, the Star Wars podcast where we don't really talk about Star Wars. My name is William Bibiani. I'm a film critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a film critic. I don't have a cool nickname, but you can call me Talon Gendro. Cool. Of, of the Mactar system. Oh, those dreaded guys. Mm. How, so is, how they are. So they are. So answer me a question and be please be very brief about this. Okay. Is Mandaloria a place, or is Mandalorian like a, like a, a it's like the, I think the it's Masons. Man, I think it's, it's like Mandalore. Mandalore. I think it's Mandalore. All right. I'm going to look this up. Wouldn't they be Mandalorians then? No. Not Mandalorians? You know what, dude? I don't make it up, all right? <laughs> They're just making that stuff up now. Yeah, Mandalorians are but, fictional people. The planet Mandalore. M-A-N-D-L-A-O-R-E. Mandalore. Yeah. All right. You'd think it would be Mandalorians, then. Mm, maybe that was taken. Oh, well, Star Wars is officially ruined now. <laughs> it's like that extra E in the word Wookiee. They don't need it. Dude, it's... it's What? That's how, the, that's how their language works. It's not all... I'm sorry, it's not... It doesn't... Wait, it's, so not, they, it's not all based on romance languages, dude. They just make <laughs> this shit up. It's a totally different planet. They have different languages. It's the reason why you... Okay, anyway, we're getting off in a minute. Yeah, this yeah, is a Star you know, Wars podcast. You know where most of those Star Wars films get shown? <laughs> Here on Earth. This is a Star Wars podcast, mm. which is not about Star Wars so much as it is, as it is about the prehistory of Star Wars. Uh, we are not experts in everything Star Wars. I just had to look up Mandalore, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, but we love Star Wars. We love a lot of Star Wars. We admit that Star Wars has a lot of flaws because we're film critics. But we respect Star Wars' place in the culture. And we thought it would be a really good idea to use Star Wars as a lens to look backward in film history. And look at all the various films that inspired Star Wars. Whether it be the original film or any of the others in the series. We wanted to look at the way that Star Wars has become a sort of consolidization of all the art and film that came before it. Yeah. And as a result, we've talked about a lot of films uh, on this podcast. But one thing we haven't really done yet is a comedy. It's because the Star Wars films aren't funny. Well, that's not strictly true. There's, there are funny bits. There's a few funny moments, but I think once they start to play really broadly comedic, audiences tend to reject Star Wars. Yeah, we're which, especially, we're especially going to talk oh. about how that relates to the Phantom Menace in this episode. Yeah, and I was about to say, and nowhere is that more true than in the example we're going to give you this evening. Yeah. Uh, the Phantom Menace uh, was the long-awaited first prequel to Star Wars. Um came out in 1999. It was one of the most anticipated movies in history, if not the most, mm -hmm. at the time. Certainly an argument to be made. <clears throat> Excuse me. And George Lucas, to his credit, didn't 
do the same thing over and over again. That was what The Force Awakens job was. <laughs> and I'm not even complaining. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a good movie. But they were very specifically trying to take what had worked before, do it in a different way, but try to just recapture the feels. George Lucas, to his credit, I don't think The Phantom Menace is a very good film, but he went back to the original well, not Star Wars. He wasn't inspired by Star Wars. He was inspired by the stuff that inspired Star Wars. He was inspired by the stuff that he grew up with, classic cinema in a lot of ways. Uh, much like Star Wars was inspired by the Flash Gordon serials, uh, mm. so too was The Phantom Menace. We've already talked a bit about how uh, the film's episodic structure mirrors a lot of the things that happen in the Flash Gordon serials from uh, you know starting off in the bad guy's lair and then going on an underwater adventure and facing off a bunch of sea monsters and then going into the underwater city. And it, the, the whole mm. episodic chapter structure of Phantom Menace is very in keeping with the spirit of Star Wars and the these prehistory of Star Wars. But one of the things that George Lucas added in The Phantom Menace as an element that got really highlighted was a, a, a physical comic relief character. We previously had R2-D2 and C-3PO as sort of our sidekicks, our mm. uh, outside observers, people who could comment on the action without necessarily always being a part of it and feeling all of the drama too intensely. C-3PO got a lot of the gags. R2-D2 got a lot of the cute you know, physical stuff got the fall over like a tin can mm -hmm. but jar jar binks was different jar jar binks was very very much a silent type of movie comedian he that, was yeah, yeah that is that is from the silent era and yeah. uh, you can watch a lot of special features on the phantom menace uh dvds or uh, maybe they're on disney plus i don't know i think some of them are but uh there's some interviews with George Lucas where he's being very frank about how they've never had a character as funny as Jar Jar before. Mm -hmm. And the whole secret to making the movie work is making Jar Jar funny. Yeah. Well, it's also making Jar Jar believable. This isn't the conversation we're having in this episode, but it is worth noting that having an all CGI interactive character in a live action movie mm -hmm was really novel when this came out. And certainly having one the, uh, with as much screen time as Jar Jar Binks, with as much interactivity with the live-action characters as Jar Jar Binks. And as convincing as this. It yeah, was it, it was pretty, pretty good convincing. for the time. Yeah. For the time, it was, and it still doesn't look bad, but well, like... It looks okay today. Yeah, yeah it, looks, it looks a little crisper than you, it would look more realistic now. Com but, compared to Avatar, it looks pretty rudimentary, but yeah. the, Avatar was a decade later. And also it fits the overall clean aesthetic of Phantom Menace, which I think made it feel like it was part of a different franchise because the old Star Wars movies looked so lived in mm. and Phantom Menace looked so, like, just tight sterile, and sparkling. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, sterile is a good word. I think they have a good sense of scale in that movie, but, yeah, it doesn't look lived in. Mm. Um, and Jar Jar Binks is just... The, his skin is too polished and clean and he doesn't look quite like he belongs, but for the time, groundbreaking visual effect. Um, and as played by Ahmed Best, uh, who's a very talented physical performer... It was his job to sort of take on the R2-D2 C-3PO role, especially the C-3PO role, that, that comic relief role. C-3PO was in the movie, but not in it very much. A, a funny coward, essentially. Yeah. yeah. He's, funny cowards have been part of Star Wars since literally the first scene of the original Star Wars. Mm. 
And C-3PO wasn't going to be in this movie much, so we wanted to have a stand-in character for that. But we didn't want to just have C-3PO again, and so they decided to have a more physically active character who was also a coward, who also talked kind of funny, but instead of British, he's got this uh, kind of Gungan um, accent. And uh, he doesn't know English as well, Mm. obviously, as C-3PO does. Um, And, yeah, he would do a lot of pratfalls, and Mm. he would get his tongue stuck on things. And the the first Star Wars character to step in poop that we know of, <laughs> at least that was captured, fully realized on camera. Yeah, I assume there's a deleted scene somewhere where literally every Star Wars character steps in poop. It's, this it's is the only one that was so good it made it into the film. It's actually a really common motif. A lot of people don't know this, but that's how you get your Jedi powers. <laughs> it was it was revealed in one that's episode. That's how midi infect yeah. you. Yeah. It's not actually poop. It's like something that grew up out of the center of the planet and just looks like poop. And it has all the midi chlor. Never mind. That's, that's, that's <laughs> never listen to Wendy. Um, I, I'm right about everything Star Wars. And Jar Jar Banks got a lot of flack. Uh, I can't think of another character other than maybe Scrappy Doo mm. that is more widely hated by a popular audience than yeah. Jar Jar Banks. Uh, Jar Jar Banks, because he was a I, we got to say it, a failed comedy character. Yeah. Not just a slapstick comedy character in a Star Wars film, which was a weird match for a lot of people, mm-hmm. but one that actually wasn't funny. I think if he was funny, it wouldn't matter. Oh, yeah. We'd all, I be, think, we'd yeah. all love him to pieces. Yeah. And I think one of the, we can talk about why hmm. he, that comedy didn't work uh, when we talk about this episode. The other issue, of course, with Jar Jar Banks, a lot of people uh, referred to him uh, as a throwback to sort of minstrel characters yeah, yeah, um, and called him a racist caricature, which is, let's be fair here, it's not an unreasonable interpretation mm-hmm. of how he's portrayed. A lot of, a lot of, a lot of critics at the time said that yeah. right away. Uh, South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut, which came out the same year as The Phantom Menace, mm-hmm. slipped in a reference to that, yeah, rem- to, to the racial insensitivity of the Jar Jar character. I remember The Boondocks back when it was a comic strip, like before it was a, a, mm. a cartoon, was doing Jar Jar Binks strips. Mm. Um, it was what, not what seen it, as, a, as a positive mm. character. No. And, um, and uh, Ahmed Best uh, went through a good deal of suffering because of this. Like yeah. He and Jake Lloyd, who played a young Anakin Skywalker, were Land Best. They, they went through hell yeah. because of this. And I think... Uh, poor Jake Lloyd was kind of broken by all of the negative attention he got uh, to the point where he's just, he was kind of bullied incessantly. Yeah. Uh, He left. He's not doing stuff. He had to leave the public eye. Like he, he like had to go through serious, like years of therapy because of this. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ahmed best has very frankly talked about how the treatment of the Jar Jar Binks character in the popular consciousness led him to thinking about suicide. Uh, He just was not in a really good place. It took him a long time to come to peace with it. Mm -hmm. Uh, if you go back uh, to an old Popcorn Mafia podcast, which was Gray Drake's old podcast, she interviews Ahmed Best for like two episodes worth of material. And he yeah. very frankly lays out the entire journey of going up and going back down and going back up again with Jar Jar. I have a lot of respect for Ahmed Best. Obviously, mm. he trusted George Lucas's vision. Obviously, it was supposed to be a throwback character in a lot of ways. Mm. And obviously, frankly, it did not particularly work. Um, and you know, the racial element is certainly a part of that, but the fact that the character just, the character's humor didn't fit Star Wars is really significant. And in order to figure out why Jar Jar Binks's version of physical comedy, Mm -hmm. which in a vacuum should be funny, just wasn't, I think we have to go back to the root of that kind of character. And we're going to go back to a film 
that seems to have very specifically inspired certain physical comedy sequences in The Phantom Menace. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a film uh, by and starring one of the great silent comedians and great silent filmmakers. Uh, and it is a film that is not that, even though it was the silent filmmaker's most popular film when he was alive, at least when it came out, hmm. it's now considered a little bit more obscure. Uh, this it's is definitely uh, secondary at, at best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, this is uh, a film directed by Buster Keaton and Donald Crisp called The Navigator. It's a silent film. We don't have a clip. <laughs> There's no clip. It would just be you just hear an organ music going do 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 do. We don't really the, have anything for it. The, we watched it on Blu-ray, and the Blu-ray uh, was scored by a rather prolific uh, composer, film composer named Robert Israel. Mm. You probably know Robert Israel from the Price is Right theme song. Oh no, kidding! I yeah. didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. That's Ro- funny. Robert Israel did like TV theme songs and That's stuff, amazing. including the Price is Right. Okay, uh, so uh, Buster Keaton. Mm. Uh, is one of my very favorite filmmakers. Buster Keaton was a silent comedian, uh, grew up in vaudeville. Uh, he was known, uh, he was he was part of a vaudeville family. Uh, his, da- his mom played saxophone and his dad did vaudeville shows. And very early on, they realized that Buster Keaton was nearly indestructible. <laughs> the story that has been told so often that the details have changed. But I'll tell you the fun version. Is when Buster Keaton was like a, a year and a half old, he fell down a flight of steps and was fine. Mm. And Harry Houdini had said, witness this and said, you can't bust that kid. And that's why they called him Buster Keaton. That's apocryphal. That's, that's, that's a, not, not at a, least not a the true Harry story. Houdini thing. At least the Harry Houdini thing. I buy that his long standing nickname probably came from something that happened. And oh. he was very famously indestructible. In fact, his vaudeville routine with his dad they involved his dad throwing his kid around the audience to the point where they had to like attach like a suitcase handle to the back of his coat (laughs) and it was just and the thing is they were like called into court for this and they had to prove that Buster Keaton wasn't getting injured that he actually like knew they was trained in how to fall and he never actually hurt himself but they got in a lot of trouble over it like it was not good but he'd been a, a comedian and he'd been a pratfall man and he'd been a stunt man for many, many, many years until uh, in the silent era he started uh, picking up work. Uh, initially, he was working with Roscoe, quote unquote, Fatty Arbuckle, uh, a rather notorious figure uh, in the silent era who's. Yeah, look him up. It's a, lot, <laughs> it's a complicated story and it's it's not really Buster Keaton's story. And it involves murder. Yeah, it's, it's, it's some weird, mm. bad stuff happened. Um, but uh, Buster Keaton eventually uh, broke out on his own and developed his own comedic persona in which he was uh, frequently called Old Stoneface because every single thing that happened to him, whether it was mundane, romantic, frightening, incredible, or life-threatening, it never phased him. He had this the same facial expression. Um, when... Uh silent film started to uh, just started to manifest uh, as as an art form uh, the way acting uh, didn't change for a little bit the way uh, actors approached acting didn't change from their stage days because uh, stage actors had to emote large they had to emote to the back of a large theater they had to use their whole body they had to give these really exaggerated facial expressions that's why a lot of people consider silent film acting to be that exaggerated because they hired stage actors mm-hmm. 
there weren't film actors yet. Uh, it's been said that Mary Pickford was the one who really kind of invented screen acting. Yeah. That is acting to an audience that is a camera lens that is right next to you rather than to the back of a room. Yeah. Uh, Buster Keaton has both. He's really, he's really virtuosic in this. He is able to act with his whole body and do these really impressive stunts and stage things in a broad way that read from the back of a room. But at the same time, he's making cinema, so he's actually staging these really complicated things that you would need a camera in order to capture. And also, with his stone face acting, was able to give you a lot by just barely changing expression. And a camera would need to be right up close mm-hmm. to Notice detect, any detect those little yeah. changes. Yeah. But often the camera would be uh, a real, real wide, and what he would do is, in order to express, you know, curiosity or alarm, mm. would just be a subtle change in posture. Yeah. And it's actually almost a meta joke when you think about it, because a lot of the things that Buster Keaton would do in his short films and his features, uh, get in high stakes chases, run mm. from the police, or uh, a house would fall on him. Yeah. These are all things that we would know from other movies, other things that we had seen, would be very upsetting. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it didn't phase him was hilarious. There's a a, a a story Monty Python tells about Monty Python on the Holy Grail that I think about a lot when I think about the genius of Buster Keaton and his comic persona. Uh, was the first time they showed Monty Python and the Holy Grail to an audience. There was a scene that took a while for the audience to get behind, and it was the scene with the Black Knight. Mm. where Arthur meets the Black Knight. The Black Knight says, none shall pass. And Arthur simply must pass, and so they get into a duel, and Arthur cuts off the Black Knight's arm, but the Black Knight still wants to keep fighting, mm. so he cuts off the Black Knight's other arm. Tis but a scratch. Yeah. yeah, it's only a flesh wound, and he cuts off his other leg, and he's just like, right, I'll do you for that! <laughs> what are you going to do, bleed on me? <laughs> and the story goes, according to the folks of Monty Python, that audiences. It was so violent that audiences didn't know what to do with it. They was like, is this tragic? What's going on? It's only when they realized that the Black Knight wasn't feeling any pain, (laughs) that the Black Knight wasn't Uh, phased by this, that it became funny. mm. So the fact that Buster Keaton is going through all of these horrendous circumstances and is unfazed is what makes them funny. Mm. Because anyone else would be freaking out. He's hilarious when he does it. Reminded of a, a Futurama gag. Uh, they could get away with so much on Futurama because one of their characters was a robot. Mm-hmm. If a human did those things, for some reason the censors would freak out. Yeah. So there was a scene where uh, Bender had adopted a dozen children just for the check. And he mistreated <laughs> the children. It's like, uh, what are your names? You're all named Bender Jr. Now come with me. <laughs> We're going to go to the bar and get some food. And the kids all would said, yay, our dad is a giant toy. Uh <laughs> Because the kids weren't unhappy, they got away with everything. (laughs) The kids just enjoyed it. Um, One of Buster Keaton's most famous gags, and if you were to ask me what's the best single shot Mm. in all of cinema, I would be hard-pressed not to pick this. Uh, He did a gag that involved a house falling on him. Mm. It's maybe the most incredible thing ever. It's from a movie called Steamboat Bill Jr., He's standing in front of a house. Probably famous just because of this shot. People know this shot who've never Mm. even heard the name Steamboat Bill Jr. He's standing in front of a house. And the house has a door, it's windows, and there's a window on the second story that Mm. is open. The front facade of the house falls over onto Buster Keaton. Mm. And 
he falls, it falls like with the window over him so that he is completely unscathed. That house facade, according to, I mean, it's a, it's a real house facade. It's hmm. genuinely that size. Weighed about two tons. And there's only a couple of inches of clearance on either side of Buster Keaton. He could have been destroyed. He could have been flattened like a pancake. And instead he just stands there. Huh. Like it's the most incredible thing you've ever seen. The most incredible thing anyone has ever done. And he's like, oh no, my house. Like that's it. Takes a second to realize what happened. It's yeah, absolutely um, incredible. But uh, when it came, comes down to it, and there's a lot of this in The Navigator, uh, when the Buster Keaton Stoneface character, he was unfazed by everything. He would just sort of walk away. He was a little bit oblivious, very Mr. Magoo. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, when it came time for like the crisis in the film to occur, he would step up. And we yeah. see this in films like Steamboat Bill Jr. We see this in The General, probably his best-known film. And we see this very much in The Navigator, when he becomes essentially Jackie Chan. Yeah, he's and very Jack, capable, yeah, and, does and, a lot of crazy yeah, stunts. And, and Jackie Chan famously said he took a lot of inspiration from Buster Keaton when he was doing a lot of his stunts. Uh, Buster Keaton and Harold Lloyd, I believe he said, were his big yeah, two. Yeah. Uh, Harold Lloyd is mostly forgotten today, which is a shame. Probably best known for a movie called Safety Last, which involved him climbing a tower and hanging from a clock. Great movie. Hmm. Um, but yeah, so uh, the other thing about Buster Keaton that I think is really uh, incredible, and I think it's the sort of thing that... People don't really think about it enough because a lot of the other silent comedians of the era were relying on visual gags that were the sort of thing you could do on vaudeville. Mm-hmm. Uh, Charlie Chaplin would do gags that you could probably see him do on stage a lot of the time. Buster Keaton did gags you could only do in a film. He got real creative as his career went on. He was uh, one of the few like silent comedians who wrote most of his own gags. Mm-hmm. Um, and he would come up with stuff that you could only do in a film. It would make no sense any other way. One of his best films, one of the best silent films I've ever seen, is mm-hmm. a film called Sherlock Jr., in which Buster Keaton plays a film projectionist who falls asleep and walks into the Sherlock Holmes movie that he's projecting and becomes part of the film. And he like falls asleep, and he wakes up, and he's like superimposed on himself like a ghost in so many movies. Mm-hmm. And he walks into the frame... And there's these incredible series of gags where Buster Keaton is on the screen. You see him in the movie theater on the movie screen and he's doing something. And then there's a camera edit and the entire scene around him changes, but he's still in the same spot. But now he's like hanging in midair and he falls. And this happens a whole bunch of times. You could never do that outside of film. That's that's like Daffy Duck, Duck Duck Amuck stuff. I was going to say that they did that like... 20 years later in Chuck Jones shorts. Yeah, but like this was mm. really exciting, fascinating filmmaking on top of being legitimately very funny. He was very aware of the medium of film and he was pushing the medium of the film much in the same way like someone like George Lucas would do with Star Wars where you're just going to see what is film capable of. Mm. I am entranced by the possibilities. And that's something that I've always keyed into with Buster Keaton. Not only is he... You know, this great stalwart hero who's, you know, a little a little oblivious, a little a little uh, a little slow on the uptake, but otherwise a decent person who does the right thing and outwits the bad guys with cleverness. But he was also a very fiendishly smart filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And that's a really, really great thing to see. Well, it, it's always exhilarating when you come upon a filmmaker who's really excited by the possibilities of what cinema can do. And uh, I think that's why a lot of people... St- keep on coming back to people like George Lucas 
or uh, or James Cameron to a or Christopher more... Nolan. I know a lot of yeah, people are like people... I don't care if I get the plague, I'll go see Tenet in mm. theaters. And I'm like, I do care if I get the plague, <laughs> but I understand your point. Christopher mm. Nolan makes films writ large, to his credit, R- writ large and uh, thrilled with what the medium can portray. Yeah. Like trying to really push the limits. Uh, the Wachowskis are, are other filmmakers, definitely, who are really trying to stretch things. Um, and you, you get a lot of that thrill when the medium was still only a few decades old in, like, the 1920s. We are decades into the history of film at that point, but you still get a lot of people who are experimenting and trying and t- trying to see how far you can stretch these things. It's fascinating when you see a Buster Keaton film or other films in that era and you um, realize just how many cinematic techniques hadn't been invented yet. Mm-hmm. They just hadn't. Some things because of limitations of the technology. Yeah. Some just hadn't been thought of yet. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. Uh, it's incredible. Now, to get to The Navigator. Uh, the Navigator, uh, the plot takes as much time to explain as the film takes to tell it. Uh, because <laughs> the plot is actually weirdly complicated right at the beginning. Uh, needless to say, uh, Buster Keaton propo- decides to marry his fiancée and books the honeymoon before he's even proposed. She says no. He says, well, I've booked the trip. I'm going to go anyway, and I'm going to go at night because I don't want to wake up early. So he goes onto the ship, mm-hmm. loses the slip, and gets on the wrong ship. Uh, meanwhile, some t- toughs from a, one of two warring countries yeah. has, let's just say they, they're the ones okay. who set the shit a, ship adrift. Yeah. The, uh, the ship has like strategic and, military value to mm-hmm. them, so the whole, to their, like, their enemies. So they're going to set it adrift and just like, we'll just let the fog and the rock banks and we'll just let them all deal with it and the ship won't be anyone's problem anymore. It'll just be adrift and mm-hmm. that's that. Buster Keaton is the only person on that drift except just before it gets set adrift, the woman Buster Keaton asked to marry him, whose mm-hmm. father happens to be like a big shipping magnate. Yeah. She ends up on the ship as well and now they're adrift at sea in a giant ship together with no one else and on top of that... They're, neither of them are sailors, and neither of them have ever prepared their own food before. They're extremely bougie. There's this really wonderful bit at the beginning. The, the whole kitchen sequence is terrific. Yeah, but I'm talking about even before that, where we're mm. introducing just how out of touch these characters are. Mm. Um, so, you know, there, there's a scene in the movie Widows. Have you seen Widows? <laughs> yeah, I saw Widows. So there's a scene in the movie Widows where uh, Colin Farrell plays like a comptroller or something like that or, or something. Mm. He's like, uh, uh, no, not, what's the word? He plays a local politician, and okay. he's giving a speech in one of the poorer neighborhoods in Chicago. Yeah, Chicago. Chicago. And he gets in his car, and the camera stays on the car. One long shot, and we ha- see him have a short conversation, and it goes from the poorest neighborhood in town to the richest neighborhood in town. You could walk it in twice the time. Mm. And it just goes to show you just how close everything is, and how out of touch everything is, and how... okay. At the beginning of this movie, Buster Keaton wakes up, decides to get married, walks out of his house. We see him one shot. We see him walk out of his house, mm-hmm. get into a fancy car. Drive, fancy, o- drive over a slope. <laughs> yeah, yeah the, dri- the car basically does a U-turn around the street mm-hmm. and then parks across the street because his girlfriend lives across the street. And when she says no, and he just sort of like, uh, uh, oh, well, I guess I better go. Mm-hmm. And she says, yes, I think you better had. <laughs> he, gets, he gets out of the house and his chauffeur opens the door and he says, no, uh, I think I need a walk. And he just walks across the street back to his mm. house. 
There, there's a gag like that in L.A. Story as well, mm. or they drive literally next door. Yeah. Because mm. um, nobody, nobody walks in L.A. Nobody walks in L.A. Uh, so, yeah, they're both on this ship, and they, there's this really adorable sequence where they're running around the ship, and the ship is so big that they keep missing each other, and they walk around, and they hear that there's another person on this ship, and the camera keeps pulling back wider and wider, and you realize just what a complicated bit of choreography this was. That, oh, like, definitely. Yeah, there's eventually we see the entire rear of the ship, and the two actors, like actually the two actors, are popping up in different parts, like across yeah. the ship. Yeah, always just missing each other. There's like four different planes of action, foreground, background, three different levels. They and there are no edits. They actually had to do that. Yeah. Now, granted, this is a little easier to do in silent movies where the director could just yell, "Don't walk so fast!" But it's still complicated and yeah. it's still difficult to do. When they finally realize that they're on the ship together, and of course, oh, it's him. Hmm. Um, well, they have to they have to get settled and they have to figure out what to do and they need to make food. They have no idea how to make any food. And I like that neither <laughs> does she. Like this would be the most obvious gag in the world if he was the idiot and oh. she was a genius. They're both unfamiliar with the world and it makes their relationship really funny. Yeah. And so when when they come upon like canned meat, no, mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Did you? I used to open cans this way. I came upon a few where you, yeah, you have a key. You insert the key and you have to twist it all the way around to un- unseal the top of the can. And, we had a few of those. And there's so a there was... ra- razor sharp top, and you always cut yeah. your finger on it. We had uh, mostly. I remember those cans being for. Uh, I almost said smoked oysters. Smoked oysters. <laughs> smoked oysters. My dad was a big fan of smoked oysters. It was one of his favorite treats. Like, we didn't have it very often, but he would... Yeah. I grew up with it. But my point okay. is, they had the key. That was mm. the, what I remember it being most from. Yeah. But that, that was how... Can, they didn't used to have a pull can, or you didn't necessarily used to have, like, a can opener. There was, like, a key, and you put the key in, and you would wind the key, and it would remove the top of the it, can. Yeah, it, would, it, would, it would strip a, a single strip of tin around this key. Yeah. Until you had this big coil of tin. Yeah. And you pull the top of the can off. That was how it used to be. Uh, it's important because they mine that for a lot. They can't get the cans open. Yeah. So uh, there's a bit where he tries to do the key and the key breaks, which was common. And he, yeah. and so he just sort of looks at it for a minute and then puts it back on the shelf and tries again. Yeah. It's it's partly opened already. The food is going to go bad. Yeah, you can see it slosh out, yeah. but he's just he's completely. There's a bit where she needs, she decides to make coffee, but she doesn't know how many how much coffee you put in a thing. She so she takes like, two beans. I, I, puts I, them I, in I a think it's like pot. five. She puts them and it's a gigantic coffee pot. Yeah, and just puts them in the bottom of the pot and then puts it like on on a cold stove. Yeah, they got this uh, this this salted pork, you know, to to, to keep longer. Mm-hmm. And she cuts off a thin strip, and she doesn't know what to do with it, so she just ties it in T- a knot. Ties it in a knot and puts it on top of the rest of the, the pork. <laughs> uh, Buster Keaton tries to drill into a can. Mm-hmm. Doesn't go doesn't very go well. So well. Uh, <laughs> there's a pot of boiling water in the kitchen, and so he decides, oh, I'll just boil some eggs. And f- that just becomes a complete fiasco. He can't get the eggs in the pot, or he, yeah. he and, tries to pull them out, and they're not boiled yet, and they break everywhere. And the reason, listen, these are silly gags. Mm-hmm. We can all agree that that's a silly gag. They're hilarious. But, but the reason, wh- but we have to ask ourselves, what makes it hilarious and not just a silly gag? Because mm-hmm. we've all seen people do this kind of humor and not make it work. Mm-hmm. What makes this work? And I think the reason why wacky comedy works well with Buster Keaton, and the reason why I think it often works well with Charlie Chaplin or Harold mm-hmm. Lloyd, and why a lot of other broad comedians are able to make it work, mm-hmm. it's because... Bad things are happening to them while they are trying to be serious, while they are trying to maintain mm. their dignity. And when 
something you know it's it, there's a there's someone taught me in uh, I had a screenwriting class in college and they talked about uh, when is it funny when someone falls over okay and that's actually a good question and what my professor said and I think I've seen some exceptions to this here and there usually mm. meta jokes someone just falling over isn't funny it's sad mm. So, someone falling over when they're trying to do something else is funny. Mm-hmm. So, like, if you're trying to, like, oh, no, that person has my phone. I better run and go get them. Mm-hmm. Because you're interrupting a flow of action. If all that is happening is someone is falling over, you're just seeing human misery. But if the idea is something else is happening and that's all you can think about and falling over is merely an impediment to a larger problem, mm-hmm. falling over becomes less tragic, falling over becomes more of an obstacle than it is just a physical bit of pain, and now it's something funny. Yeah. I th- again, that's I think there are exceptions to that, but it's an interesting mm-hmm. way to think about pratfalls. And I think... Some things that Buster Keaton would do or something that Charlie Chaplin would do is when these bad things are happening to their characters, they're, they have other problems. <laughs> like, they're trying to eat here. Like, there's a mm. dignity to this. I'm just trying to well, cook I, food for me and my, my girl, and I just can't. And like, nothing I can do looks cool. Well, I, I think it's that... It's it's the failure that we're laughing at. There's a pathos yeah. to Buster Keaton. Mm. He is stone-faced. He... It's almost like he doesn't know how badly he's failed. Yeah. It's like this. Well, that didn't really work out, did it? It's like, yeah. well, no, that's not how you boil an egg. You, you're kind of dumb here. And he, the, the sort <laughs> but of he doesn't know. He's just he's the, just the, the, going, bo- going about his business with dignity. Yeah, both of the characters are so thick that we're actually kind of laughing at them. Yeah. To a degree, and we're it's, laughing at how yeah. bourgeois they are that they don't know how to boil an egg. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So. Uh, it's not that necessarily something's being interrupted. I think that there is a level of mockery going on. And mm. of course it works because we know Buster Keaton has arranged it that way. Right. We're not, you know, Buster Keaton isn't doing something earnestly and we're laughing at him. That's, that's more of uh, the purview of like a, a cult movie, like fateful findings or the room. Oh no, 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 no. I'm not talking about ironic. Makers. I'm yeah. not talking about, well, there's a bit of irony here, but like I, I, I what I'm talking about ironic viewing. I'm not talking about that. Yeah. What, I, what I'm saying is that, He's not trying to be funny. He's trying to not be funny. He's just mm. trying to make his meal. The fact that he doesn't know how to do it mm. is a tragedy he's unaware of. Yeah. And that's something that creates a disconnect. This is something that should be going one way, mm. but it's going another way. I know how to make coffee. They don't know how to make coffee. And the the silliness of the scene is lost on them because they don't have the information to know why this is funny. Mm. They're, ergo, this is really funny. There's an old saying that if you have to explain a joke, it's not funny. Um, I personally believe that goes both ways, which is even if a joke is funny, once you start trying to explain it, it stops being funny. <laughs> I always did that to my for myself as just a little fun intellectual exercise. I yeah. would just look at a joke, think of a movie that I'd seen a hundred times and think of a bit that had made me laugh every time. Yeah. And tried to really put it into context. Like if I was had to explain that to Data on Star Trek. Yeah. Like, how would I explain that to him? Because he's, he's an android. He doesn't understand humor. Yeah. So how, why would I, how would I explain why that's funny? What, what is the juxtaposition? Mm-hmm. What is the uh, ex- extreme? What is the path? What is the expectation that yeah. is being dashed? Exactly. Yeah. Classic. And, uh, yeah. And I, I always got such a, a wonderful uh, intellectual thrill that I started to think, oh, well, that's actually kind of funny into itself. It's not. It's really not. <laughs> 
Like explaining a joke to an android is not a funny task. Yeah, it's just an intellectual exercise. And explaining humor is difficult as well, but I think it's important in the case of Buster Keaton because eventually we're going to wrap this around to why mm. Jar Jar didn't quite work. Um, over the night, uh, they need to find a place to sleep. All of the beds break on them. It's very funny. Hmm. There's a really weird bit with a painting that's like really yeah. creepy painting that's in like her quarters and she tries to throw it off the ship but it ends up hanging on the ship and it looks like there's a creepy guy staring at Buster Keaton from the ocean. <laughs> it's a weird it's, gag. It's, it's a weird gag but it's very, very funny. It's, it's creepy. I like it. But they, uh, yeah, eventually they find a way to make it work. They, they, they're adrift at sea for so long. Yeah, months. That indeed they become experts and... When they wake up, it's exhilarating because not only have they decided they found places to sleep, they sleep in the old furnaces. Yeah. So there's no coal or fires burning anymore. The, the engines are cold, yeah. but they're, so they've made a home in the furnaces. They each have their own little dorms. Yeah. They get up in the morning. They've built the most amazing automated wonderment you've seen in cinema this side of an American in Paris. Buster Keaton has invented a can opener. However... It's a can opener that's like a, a, an exercise cycle that takes a hacksaw. It, it's it, using a hacksaw, uh, a sharpening stone, like the spinning yeah. a spinning sharpening stone and a pair of pedals. He's made it into this thing that can saw cans open. Yeah. So he just does that anyway. He puts the can down. He can saw it open now. He invented a can opener. Yeah. He had nothing but time. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> It's a Gilligan's Island, you know, thing in there yeah, somewhere. Uh, they, yeah. they can pull a, a lever and just the right amount of coffee beans now pours into the coffee pot. And yeah. they, know, they, they know how to flip a switch so something can light that's furnace and they can actually cook their breakfast in the morning. But what they haven't figured out how to do is steer a ship. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, there's one time where they actually, there's another boat in the distance and they try to like wave to them and they're going to roll up a flag. Mm. But the flag that they roll up is the quarantine flag. So the ship immediately turns right. around and they leave it up there because they have no idea what that means. Mm. Um, the film hits a climax like pretty hard. Like it runs ashore literally on a climax. Mm. Uh, when they find land, but the island, and here's where it gets kind of racist, uh, the island is full of cannibals. Mm. They have no way of knowing that they're cannibals. They're not seeing, like, someone in a big pot of soup. Right. They're just making this assumption, and it's kind of fucked up. And it's kind of, and they're right, of course. We talked about this with King Kong, um, you know, this other this mm. othering of people from uh, other cultures and how they're all threatening, and mm. it's fucked up. And I kept hoping that there would be a reversal here, that they would be, like, really scared of these yes. people, but it turns out they're really nice and run, like, a resort community or something. But mm. no, no, yeah, they're, they're going to attack they're the just, ship. They're, yeah. Yeah. This, this stock movie villain, which just happened to be uh, really common at the time, this horrible racist cliche. Which is, there's a bit at the beginning, which is actually surprisingly progressive, where Buster Keaton decides to get married because... Because he looks oh, yeah, out his I was, window. I was gonna mention this. He yeah. looks out his window in the morning, just gets up, looks out his window, and he sees a happy newly married couple. A happy newly married couple of black Americans who are wealthy mm -hmm. and cheerful and in love and being driven around by a chauffeur, and they just drive away. That's it. And there's no gag. There's no gag. They're just happy and cool. And it's like, nice. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So when it runs aground on racism at the end of the movie, it's disheartening. Extra, extra jarring. It's disheartening. Mm -hmm. But this is something that we're still living down in a lot of our culture, and it's the sort of thing that we would see in 
George Lucas films, like the Indiana Jones movies, especially like the first mm. one, and, um, and, and then second one, I guess, a and, little bit. And, and it could be argued also with Jar Jar. Um, uh, and the Ewoks as well are, very, yeah, yeah, are yeah, yeah, yeah. a vestigial element of this, and we talked about this when we did Distant Drums, how a lot of these pulp and broad storytelling tropes that were ascribed largely to racism have filtered into sci-fi fantasy, but like now they're being done with like orcs and goblins and things, and that doesn't make it better, it just means you're keeping this racist thing alive but you're hiding it or you're trying to anyway and, covering it in latex or CGI and some people complain that other people can notice that no this is still racist but it's there like you can't pretend yeah, that it's yeah. not it's really obvious so the big climax is they're attacked by all these people and two things happen simultaneously um, one is that the ship uh, springs a leak and the only way to fix it is to go underwater and fix it that way and Buster Keaton has to get into a diving suit and there's so many gags. There's so many good gags. Oh, gosh. Well, first of all, he lands in the diving suit and in a, a great Looney Tunes moment, puts out a caution men working tripod. Underwater. He's, he's underwater. <laughs> uh, he a gets, swordfish gets, tries yeah, to Poked in him. the back by a swordfish. He grabs the swordfish and wrestles with it and uses it to fight off a second swordfish, <laughs> sword fight style. Very, very funny. All underwater, by the way. There's a like gag. shot underwater. There's a gag that was apparently cut out of this that mm. I, it sounds hilarious, where Buster Keaton is underwater, and this is all shot in, like, an underwater tank, mm. by the way, and, like, the, the scale of this gag, which was really difficult, and he was actually underwater for it, and that was an actual diving suit, and he could have died, and they actually broke the swimming pool. Um... Uh, there was a gag that they cut out where he would find a starfish mm-hmm. and he would put the starfish on his diving suit like a police star and he was going to guide fish traffic. Uh, a little, uh, I'd say that's a little silly, but he was just using a fish as a sword, so uh, appar- whatever. Apparently audiences didn't laugh, but Buster Keaton thought it was the funniest thing ever and it hurt him to cut the joke. Um, <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, Buster. But uh, but while he's underwater doing all this stuff, uh, his his lady love is being attacked and... When he, they, she's dragged to the island, and him walking out of the water like a sea monster in this diving suit is enough to make them go, ah! So they're able to escape to the boat, and they have to defend the boat, and them defending the boat is, look, they're just as good at defending a boat as they were as making coffee at the beginning of the movie. You know, like stepping in cannons and stuff. And, and the only reason why they're able to save the day is through dumb slapstick luck, exactly like Jar Jar Banks at the end of The Phantom Menace, where he's supposedly leading an army, but the only thing he does successfully is trip on things and accidentally defeat the enemy. Mm. Um, there's a gag, very specifically, I wouldn't say stolen because they changed it a little bit, um, but very specifically inspired uh, by the Navigator and The Phantom Menace, where Jar Jar uh, is fighting a droid, and a droid gets like knocked over and Jar Jar steps on the droid and gets tangled up in its wiring. And now he's got a droid with a blaster like stuck on his foot and he's trying to get it off of his foot and it keeps the blaster keeps going off and shooting other droids. Mm. That's basically one of the gags from the navigator where he finally finds a gun on the ship, but it's a little toy gun. <laughs> it's like this little like, you know, civil war cannon, but it's on a string and he's got ammunition for it. He puts a bullet in there, but the string gets stuck on his foot and now it's just chasing him around and it almost hits him, almost hits him, almost hits him. And then he finally ducks and it hits another guy who's actually trying to kill him. 
exact same type of yeah, game. The, the entire, we, we just watched it, actually, just the, the, the entire bit, which is only like a minute. Uh, it's, the Jar Jar really, The Jar Jar yeah. bit. Yeah. Uh, yeah, where he's, uh, he climbs up on a floating tank and throws, you know, like a, essentially a grenade. Yeah. Uh, disabling the pilot. All of that, and even the body language, the way he's hanging off of the turret of the tank is all very reminiscent of Buster Keaton. Mm-hmm. Uh, just in, yeah, in terms of the way he moved and the way the, the shots are staged. Um, I think the key difference between Buster Keaton, why Buster Keaton is so funny and why Jar Jar isn't, mm-hmm. isn't so much to do with, you know, weird filmmaking or uh, the general uh, tone of what they're making. One is making uh, one filmmaker was making a comedy. One was making it like a science fiction adventure mm-hmm. is actually something a lot of people complained about the Phantom Menace when it came out. And it's still a complaint at the time. And it's its artificiality. Mm. Uh, one of the central appeals of Buster Keaton, and we were talking all about it, how he actually he's a stuntman. He actually had to do all that stuff. He had to choreograph all these stunts. He had to figure out how to shoot these things very carefully. Mm. Uh, one of the things George Lucas was trying to do with The Phantom Menace was remove the uncertainty and actually do a lot of it in post. He was essentially making animated films at one point. Yeah, like, like that was, whole fight between the Gungans mm. and the droids, there's no live action in that. No. They no, might have like, used the plate for like the environment, but I don't I th- think they did. I think they did shoot uh, in like an actual open area, but I don't know that for sure. Because yeah. uh, it does have this kind of bland flatness. Yeah. Uh, so even though Ahmed Best is, you know, doing the motion capture, they're actually filming a guy and animating over him. And despite the fact that the special effects are pretty good and they can actually do that motion pretty good, it's still not convincing enough for audiences to believe that this creature is an actual peril. That's a big part of it. And uh, and that he's actually affecting some sort of change on the physical physicality of his environment because the environment has no physicality. Yeah. It's all really lightweight and it is insubstantial. It feels like something that's just sort of happening rather mm-hmm. than something that's really important, like, like there's actually yeah. action occurring well, And I think that's really significant as well because, yeah, all of this is kind of happening to Jar Jar. And mm. I think that's something that is holding his character back from a comedy perspective and also just from a dramatic perspective. When you think about Jar Jar Binks, Mm -hmm. what does he want? Like, what's his goal? Like, he doesn't, like, he talks about at the beginning of the movie about how he He was... was, He was banished for For clumsiness. He was so clumsy that he broke so much stuff that they banished him. We we cannot deal with your wacky shtick anymore. Mm. It's, It's too destructive. It's not like he's says, yeah, well, I'm trying to prove myself so that I can get back to my people. That's what happens, but he never actually says that's what he wants. Mm. He doesn't have a goal. Buster Keaton, in something like The Navigator, has a goal. He's got to survive. He's got to woo this lady who has repeatedly said she doesn't want to marry him, Mm. and he's got to save the day when they're attacked. He has Mm. very specific goals, and when all this slapstick stuff happens, it's in the way of that. And as a result, not only is it funny, but it is also an obstacle to overcome. So we're invested in seeing him overcome mm. this. When Jar Jar Binks steps in poo, mm. it's he's just stepping in poo. <laughs> when he is using his tongue to take food off of the Skywalker table and uh, Qui-Gon Jinn grabs his tongue, mm. all he was trying to do is grab food. There's a great like bit in um, the Buster Keaton film Our Hospitality. Mm-hmm. where he's like trying to eat food and he doesn't realize that the other people at the table are trying to kill him. That's a good food gag because there's something going on here. It's not just he eats food funny. 
Well, it's it's an underthought out joke. Yeah, the, there's two things that could have been happening in that Jar Jar sequence, and this is something that actually. Uh, would have been worthy of Buster Keaton film. Let's say Jar Jar Binks didn't even know there was a battle going there on. There you go. And he staggers into the battleground and even well into the battle, he's still really unsure what's going on, mm-hmm. who is fighting whom. He doesn't really understand that it's a battle, just that there's a lot of noise. Mm-hmm. And it, even though he's completely clueless, he starts batting things around, knocking things clumsily over with his elbows and ends up destroying an entire army. Yeah. That's a good gag. In, and the guy that it seems uh, like they're building up is that mm-hmm. he's going to accidentally destroy the entire army and everyone's going to call him a hero. Mm-hmm. That would be a gag, but everyone can see that he's doing it by accident. Yeah, like there's somebody, there's another character. I forget his name, but there's another Gungan. Another who's Gungan, like a, a, yeah. a warrior Gungan. Who's, yeah, like, is, see, like throws him the hand grenade and sees, no, you're screwing it up. Like he's actually yeah. giving commentary. He knows it's it. all luck. Mm-hmm. Like if people thought he did it for realsies, or even if he had, but it was just funny doing it, like um, in the Buster Keaton movie, The General, which is mm-hmm. one of the greatest comedies of all time, where he's uh, a train uh, conductor and. He's got. He ends up on a chase. He's chasing this one train mm. um, across America, basically during the Civil War, and then they chase him back. And he's got to use all of his ingenuity in order to rescue his girl and save the day. He ended. He was in the Confederate Army at the time, so mm. there's actually a weird undercurrent in that movie. But just on its face, though, he's overcoming great obstacles. And when wacky things happen, it's because it's you know suspenseful. Mm. What else can go wrong? Right. This isn't what else can go wrong to Jar Jar. He's kind of just doing it himself. And everyone can see him doing it. And even in like the second movie where he's like a senator, it doesn't really feel like people are have like a lot of confidence in him. It feels like he's just yeah, sort of well, like, hey, he's popular right now. You know, <laughs> he won an election. <laughs> like, I don't know. It was, well, an easy, this- it was an easy, there weren't a lot of competition that year. This, this separates someone like Buster Keaton from someone like George Lucas, and spe- and it actually separates early George Lucas from Phantom Menace George Lucas, mm. and that is Buster Keaton is doing something that he uh, is excited about. Mm. He's trying to experiment with film. He's uh, interested in the art form yeah. and is doing it because it interests him. Uh, he did have to cut a gag because audiences didn't think that was funny, but he's still the one in charge of all of this. In his early years, yeah. Mm. When he moved to su- to sound, he mm. lost a lot of control over his films. In yeah. fact, The General wasn't a hit, and that's actually one of the reasons why he lost control over his films, which is Damn. ironic considering that's his best movie, I think. It's been re- it's definitely been reclaimed. Uh, but when you watch the, the Star Wars movies, you can see, even when you got to The Phantom Menace, how much... In fact, you can even go to Empire Strikes Back for this. Mm-hmm. How much of these movies have been shaped by not the imagination of the filmmakers, but by the reaction to the movie, by popular opinion of the movie? Uh, Why is Darth Vader's role so much larger in The Empire Strikes Back? Why is he now the central villain? Because he was really popular in the first one. Mm -hmm. We're going to expand his role. In fact, we're going to make him the hero's father in a big twist. Mm -hmm. Uh, Clearly, this was not planned from the beginning, given the dialogue in Star Wars. Well... By the time we get to Parts the fa- fa- by the time we get to the Phantom Menace and we meet Darth Vader as a child, who the hell cares about Darth Vader as a child? He's only important to us. He's yeah. not important to the very fabric of the universe. They're not changing, not yet anyway. They're changing the Star Wars universe to match what fans thought of it. And I think yeah. I think George Lucas 
ran out of ideas on Star Wars long before he made The Phantom Menace. Mm-hmm. And when it came time to do episode one, that's my idea, he says. Uh-huh. Uh, well, what, what do I got? There's not really a story here. I know, though, that the Darth Vader origin story mm-hmm. is going is kind of important in the mind of Star Wars fans. Not important to Star Wars. Yeah. But important to the fans. And I, I think it's important like... to Star Wars. He is the bad guy. He is the bad, the hero's mm. father. He, yeah. he betrayed, you know, the Jedi Order and now mm. the Empire rules the galaxy. He is important. But mm. I don't think he's important as a kid. I think what George Lucas was trying to do mm. with Phantom Menace in particular and how it leads into the others is when you look at Phantom Menace as a very clear structural takeoff of the Flash Gordon serials. Okay. Now, they're very episodic. In fact, mm. the, the movie's structure is a nightmare. Oh, it's it's so badly <laughs> it's, written. It's, yeah. it's, but, it's, but it's written like an old serial. Clunky dialogue, broad characters. Mm. Um, it just goes from one big set piece to another. doesn't matter if the plot actually leads us there. And we meet a ton of characters along the way. I feel like what George Lucas was getting at and i have no idea of how true this is because i never heard him specifically articulate this mm-hmm. um is phantom menace was the old school serial it okay. was yeah uh, it, right. that's right. going right back to I'm it as corny so far, as it yeah. was it really was we're not doing anything different or no but what if when you're watching that serial there's that's why they call it the phantom menace there's something going on underneath all the obviousness mm. and that there's a couple of really minor characters who are just supporting characters this goofy kid that they find for kid appeal mm. and this comic relief sidekick and this kindly senator what if they're the most important characters and everyone's so busy with their bu- with their pulp fiction bullshit that they don't realize that this kid isn't being raised right and is showing a ton of red flags and that's why he becomes this evil bastard who betrays everybody the senator is horrifically corrupt but because no one's interested in politics they're just interested in gallivanting around the galaxy getting in sword fights they're not interested in politics and they don't realize he's taking over the senate and all of a sudden here's this guy who's an obvious idiot who becomes part of a he becomes a politician based on celebrity let's be honest what Mm. else did he have policies like we never talk about that and he ends up becoming a pawn who is the fun like the deciding vote to make the emperor the emperor and not just a senator that's all in there it's badly told yeah yeah. (laughs) but i think that's what he was getting at is what if we started off with pulp and it got increasingly interesting and insidious over time and so this little kid who might be annoying is important later that that's the idea anyway that that's the idea and that would work if we had no foreknowledge of where it was gonna go that's the irony the of problem it. I is we like, know everything about where it's gonna go and i think and and i think the other reason why that never plays why you can't really watch the series from episode one through nine in that order mm. you kind of have to watch it four five six one two three Seven, eight, nine. Some people like to do four, five, one, two, three, six, and I guess I can right. see your point with that. But um, uh, I've what, what's it called? It's called the Hatchet Order. Uh, the Machete Order. Machete Order. There's yeah. there's an where you watch Star Wars and The Empire Strikes Back, then you watch uh, episodes two and three. You skip one entirely. That's <laughs> because not in people this. don't like one because <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, like it's actually kind of useless to the the Darth Vader story. But basically, yeah, once you know Darth Vader is Luke's father, you see Darth Vader's story, and then we cut back to Return of the Jedi, and Return of the Jedi will theoretically have more weight. Hmm. Um, theoretically, theoretically, I think George Has, Lucas. If, if you've watched watched it in the Hatchet Order, I'd like to know your take on Machete it. Order. But yeah, or sorry, Machete. Order. Uh, yeah, I, I I never had that opportunity. I saw them when they came out. But hmm. if you're younger, you have that option. Um, 
But where was it? Where was it going? But yeah, you can't really watch them in order from one through nine because information isn't given in the first movie. They don't explain what the force is really until episode four. That's a long time to get into that. Yeah. Or, or or what a Jedi is, like yeah. these weird monks that have something to do with government, but they're not like they're not consultants, yeah. they're not actual politicians, but they have a lot of clout somehow. There's a lot of moments that mean absolutely nothing in the prequels unless you know Oh, those are stormtroopers. What a oh, story! That's yeah, what a what, exactly. Is. Yeah. exactly. And and in fact, that's that's kind of the rise on Detra of the movie is all yeah. this callback stuff. Yeah, well, it's all it's all like really obvious foreshadowing. If it had been subtle foreshadowing, mm. you could have gotten away with that. But I remember when uh, the, the prequels came out and people were talking about how like um, yeah, it'd be like doing a prequel to Moby Dick, and it's all mm. about how Moby Dick's going to go to sea one day, and everyone's like, "You're going to have a really interesting adventure." Don't bite off anyone's legs or some like you can't. It's so obvious. Well, it's from the perspective of the whale. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which has actually been done. The, the, There's like an animated series, like the an animated movie, like The Adventures of Young Moby Dick. Oh my god! It's a cheapo straight to video thing. I saw a video about it. I, once. I know ridiculous. there was a, there's a Hanna Barbera adventure serial about oh my god I forgot about, about that. Moby Dick and his two like undersea twelve like, year old boy sidekicks. <laughs> Nothing was sacred to animation in the 70s. Like, nothing. Everything was bad. We're going to do the Three Stooges, but they're robot crime fighters now. Oh, my God. Dude, come on. I know they're the Three Stooges, but come on. We're going to do a Globetrotters cartoon. Great. We'll put it into production. Wait, wait. Hang on. They have superpowers. What? <laughs> right. So my point is this. When you look at The Phantom Menace, it's not really designed to work on its own. Mm. But it's also not really designed to work. Okay. Because Jar Jar Binks, he doesn't fit into that storyline. He doesn't have his own uh, uh, goals. He doesn't have his own wants and desires. He doesn't really fit into that narrative. Mm. He is just comic relief. Yeah. And he's comic relief that nobody else even respects or takes seriously. So his comedy always feels like an imposition on the film. Yeah. And as a result, it feels like an imposition to the audience. If Jar Jar Binks had a mission, a purpose something Jar Jar Binks would be, I think at least as accepted as, you know, maybe some of the, some of the other popular characters, maybe some of the other, you know, more 50, 50 characters. Like people love the Ewoks. People hate the Ewoks. Well, or if he were a bit more of a pathetic figure, Mm. uh, like Buster Keaton. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, not sympathetic, just pathetic, but that would make him sympathetic. Uh, Well, not necessarily some, just the kind of character that where, we can kind of derive laughter from how shitty their life is. C-3PO, then. C-3PO. A little bit more like... Like, if... if, <laughs> if They want if, C-3PO, uh, but they won't let him be C-3PO. Maybe that's the real If Jar Jar Binks came in, like, didn't uh, come in with a bunch of energy, oh, no, I need to go back to my undersea village or whatever it was. It was like, hey, h- hey, how you doing there? Fine. <laughs> you want to come with us? Sure. Do you know this village? They banished me. Like if, if it was kind of like a sad mm. character and was, and he, like no matter what happened to this guy, he was just always sad. It would be like Marvin the Martian. It'd be like or not Marvin the Martian, uh, Marvin the Android from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah. Just programmed to be depressed all the time. Well, he, he has every reason to be depressed. Yeah. He's banished. Everything he touches gets destroyed. There's mm. a, there was an old theory 
when the trilogy was still going on that uh, maybe Jar Jar is using the Force and doesn't realize it, and that's why he can. No. That's why he could do all those dumb, stupid, physical things and still kill all those oh, robots or man, whatever. I hate that shit. I, I there was a long joke that he might have been like a Dark Lord of the Sith, and he was all like his mm. his grand scheme. He was the Phantom well, Menace all along. And this goes into fan yeah. reaction. Uh, yeah. George Lucas made this character, had a lot of faith in this character. Fans reacted toxically to it right away, mm-hmm. and so the role of Jar Jar was actually reduced in the sequels as a result of that. Yeah, until or, by the third movie, I think he has like one line of dialogue. I, think, I don't even think he has a line. I think he just has a shot. I think he just looks sad at the end. Yeah, that's it. Um, it sucks. Like mm-hmm. it's it, it sucks that they had an opportunity to do this character who was from a technical level completely new. Mm. Um, who was filling a void in the series if you're not going to have C-3PO in there. Um, but they just didn't think about, like, oh, we want to put in some silent comedy. Okay, there's a reason why we don't just throw in silent comedy sketches in every movie. It doesn't necessarily fit what we're doing in every movie. Mm-hmm. So they needed to find a way to organically include Jar Jar into the story as a character, and then a slapstick wouldn't feel like an imposition on everything. And that would have really, really helped. Mm-hmm. Might not have made the character... I mean, it might not have made the character not feel racist, which is, I think, a legitimate complaint that people have had. But at the very least, he would have served a function. Yeah. And that would have, at the very least, helped him, given something to reclaim later, I think. Maybe yeah. something that we can yeah. find a way, a new way into this character, some way to fix this character over time, so that the character actually might have some dignity. But I think it's something he lacks. I think it's something Buster Keaton always had. It's a certain mm-hmm. level of dignity. And I think that's something that seeing that challenged and um, thrown off of things and drowned and all that kind of stuff, it makes it funny. Yeah. Buster Keaton movies are pretty widely available. Uh, a lot of the shorts are available. Um, if you're going to see one Buster Keaton movie, I recommend either The General, uh, Our Hospitality, or Sherlock Jr. The Navigator isn't his like top to bottom funniest movie. But it's it is still, pretty good. It's still great. It's yeah. still good. And, and Especially all, the first two thirds, I think, are really And these strong. are all short movies. They're like, I think the longest one is like 75 minutes. Yeah, so. they're really, really tightly constructed. Mm. And, and they've put a lot in there. Like, there's more movie in the general than there are in at least a couple of Star Wars films that I can think of. Mm. So, please check him out if you haven't already. He's really is one of the best uh, filmmakers we've ever had. Um, so that's it for episode zero. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, everybody, uh, for joining in. Uh, we'll be back next week with a turn to a darker side. We've gone with the lighthearted Buster Keaton stuff, which ended up having a rather severe conversation about Phantom Menace. But let's talk about mm-hmm. a movie that actually fit the DNA of the later films in the Star Wars uh, series. So if George Lucas's films were based more off of uh, lighthearted, nostalgic uh, uh, films from the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, then we need to talk about the films that came after Star Wars that are starting to be influenced by... Things that came late, in the wake of Star Wars. Yeah, things that came, well, not the wake in this case, but in this case, uh, something that came in the wake of all of those jaunty World War II movies. If the Dam Busters is all about how we're going to really get those guys, we're going to talk about a film in which a ton of people die. Like, bad. We're going to talk about... A film that had a big influence on films like Rogue One, The Dirty Dozen. And I haven't seen The Dirty Dozen. This will be a new one for me. That's cool. Neither of us had seen The Navigator, mm-hmm. so this was an interesting one. I've seen The Dirty Dozen a couple of times. I'm going to rewatch it this week. 
Um, but yeah, Dirty Dozen, uh, classic World War II movie, all-star cast, uh, kind of a bummer in some ways, but action-packed and exciting. And um, mm. I think, um, I think I, I don't know if you're going to like it, because it's not necessarily mm. your kind of movie usually. Well, I, I have seen Inglorious Bastards a good mm. number of times, okay. so I, 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 I've probably well, already seen it anyway. Have you seen The Great Escape? Uh, many times I've seen The Great Escape so Do you like times. The Great Escape? I like The Great Escape I think you'll probably like Dirty Dozen then. If you like The Great okay. Escape Dirty Dozen is a, is a close cousin of it Okay It was like that triumvirate It was The Great Escape The Dirty Dozen And The Guns of Navarone yeah. Guns of Navarone is also something we could do But Dirty Dozen might cover uh, both bases I, I, I do have just personally a, a bit of a problem with machismo yeah. In movies uh, Films that exist to uh, like throw testicles at me Are uh, <laughs> Not, not, typically, not typically enjoyed, but you know, it, that, that's not to say I'll hate something that does. No, I don't. I don't think Dirty Dozen is that kind of machismo that's right. in there. But you know, we'll talk about it. Um, um, in any case, we're going to be reviewing that next week. Uh, we hope you join us, give you an opportunity to watch the film as well, or just listen to us talk about the Dirty Dozen for an hour uh, next week on episode zero. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, everybody. Uh, if you subscribed, thank you very much. If you left us a review, thank you very much. If you're a patron, extra special, double, triple, thank you. We really couldn't be doing this without you right now. It's Times are hard, and mm. we're very, very grateful for everything everyone uh, has been able to do to support the show. And if you can't afford to support the show, that's fine, too. But to those who can, double thank you. You can go to patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Uh, we have a ton of exclusive content over there. Podcasts about Star Trek, Firefly, the Academy Awards, Disney, uh, other stuff as well. Vote for future episodes of our various podcasts here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. Mm. Tons of stuff. You can email us, letters at criticallyacclaimed.net, if you want to talk about anything on this show mm. or just want to ask us questions about you know film, film history, our recommendations, um, unrelated to film stuff, anything you want, really. Letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We might read your letter and answer it on our show, We've Got Mail, here at the network. You can follow us on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. Mm. I'm at William Bibiani, although I'm still on my uh, social media vacation, so I might not respond for a while. Well, they can still leave notes oh, for you. And you can follow me them. and tweet yeah. me. I'll be back someday, but like I'm just, hmm. for my mental health, I need to stay away from it right now. Which is completely understandable. Yeah. It's, and, uh, it's, it's a wasteland out there right now, but in that wasteland, I am Whitney Seibold. <laughs> fi- find me, tweet me, PM me, ask me questions. I'll be there. Yeah, it's all good. Um, so, everybody, thank you very, very much. We hope you're staying safe, sane healthy out there we we hope you have a wonderful week uh we'll be back soon with more shows right here on the critically acclaimed network don't worry we're never far away and um may the force be with you live long and prosper (laughs) 